Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Then There Were Two, a History of the World series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined by Lucas Bitzel virtually, as always. Lucas, how are you doing? Doing all right. Uh, just got our youngest off to bed, and all three of them off to bed. The uh, joys of summer and the kids being off school means they get to stay up a little bit later. Well, I'm feeling joy right now. On the day we're recording this, I actually made my ESPN radio guest debut for their affiliate in Louisville. Bob Valvano, the brother of the late great Jim Valvano, invited me on his show today to talk about super conferences and college football because I wrote a piece about that for my Notre Dame site. So I'm pretty uh, high ground right now. I don't blame you. I actually, I saw that. I was hoping you were going to make the cross promotion because this is the sort of stuff that we live for. I was actually, right before we got on to record this episode, was just in the process of reading through your initial article that inspired the radio hit, and I'm going to have to go listen to said radio hit as soon as we're done recording. Very good, and my thanks to Bob Valvano for having me on and all the wonderful staff at ESPN Radio in Louisville. But enough about that, let's go back into the past over a century. In fact, we are going to discuss our first Subway Series, first of 14 Subway Series in the World Series. In 1921, the New York Giants and the New York Yankees faced off in the first of the Subway Series. First time... All games were played at the same venue because both of these teams called the Polo Grounds their home. Which is kind of weird considering you you mentioned New York Yankees and the mind automatically goes, oh, Yankee Stadium, because a, a rendition of Yankee Stadium has been around for as far back as we can remember. But in 1921, this was not the case since both teams called the Polo Grounds home. It's why not have the whole thing at this one stadium and in this case you can just easily enough alternate okay you know you're the designated home team for these games you're the designated home team for these other games and obviously they made it work so let's talk about the new york yankees making their first world series appearance took us long enough to finally get there and they were in the world series thanks to no small parts to one babe ruth with maybe his best season ever hitting 59 home runs also scored 177 runs, had 457 total bases to set major league records, and 846 slugging percentage, which was just one percentage point below his mark from the year before. And he hit 378, walked 144 times, and knocked in 171 runs. So this was the first time we really saw Babe Ruth being Babe Ruth. These numbers, and especially, too, you look at a bunch of the rest of the guys on here, like the next best guy on the Yankees roster would probably be Bob Musil with his uh, 318 average and a paltry, by comparison, 24 home runs and 138 runs knocked in, which just, it's amazing that you look at those numbers and go, okay, yeah, that's a really good year, but realize that he's the second best guy on the team, and that has to be abjectly terrifying to some extent for their opponents across town. Yeah, I think that we have some of the best players to ever put on a Yankee uniform right here, even though people were just starting to get to know the Yankees. They had a great pitching staff, too. They had 3.79 ERA. They had 481 strikeouts. Carl Mays was 27-9. That led the American League in wins. And he also led in innings pitch. You had Wade Hoyt at age 21 going 19-13 with 3.10 ERA, which was fourth best of the league behind Mays' 3.04. So... Ruth had plenty of pitching support to get the Yankees to this World Series, which they did in dominating fashion with this 
98 and 55 record and they led pretty much all of baseball in attendance at the very least for the American League in attendance and that was not sitting well with the manager of the National League pennant winners the New York Giants one Mr. John McGraw. Oh hey he's back again. Yes he is back and he is facing a Yankees team that pretty much poached the American League dynasties from the previous decade. They had Bob Shockey and home run Baker from the Philadelphia Athletics. In addition to Ruth from the Red Sox, they had Wally Shang at catcher as well as Hoyt and Bob Shockey. So the Yankees, years before they were buying off some of the best players for better or worse, were taking some of the best players with them. And again, Jealousy on John McGraw's part because the Giants had been dominating for many years. Now, all of a sudden, here's this upstart's New York Yankees team that is threatening his standing as the top team in New York. Yeah, no, 100%. And just kind of looking through the history of the New York Yankees all time, and you go back through their history, and the Yankees were originally known as the New York Highlanders, joined in 1903 managed a second place finish in 1910 but other than that never really managed to climb higher than third they were in third place the years prior they finished just three games out in 1920 but there's a lot of rough years you've got a 50 and 102 campaign last in the american league their final year as the highlanders and then you start to see a slow climb once they become the yankees in 1913 and frank chance takes over but it's not really until this 1921 campaign that we see them fully break onto the scene and become the Yankees that we know and Should we say um, revile? Yeah, I guess so. But let's talk about the National League pennant winners and not just McGraw's jealousy yes. of the yes. Yankees. So George Burns was on the last pennant winning team for the Giants from 1917. He was the only significant player left from that team. But he rejuvenated his roster and filled his team with castoffs like Frank Snyder at catcher, shortstop Dave Bancroft, Emil Irish Musial in left field, and the entire pitching staff of Fred Tony, Jesse Barnes, Phil Douglas, and Art Neff. And those players combined with three homegrown stars in George Kelly, Frankie Frisch, and Ross Youngs, they gave the Giants their core of a team that would win four straight National League pennants. And they won this pennant, which was McGraw's fourth by four games over the Pirates. Kelly was the National League home run leader with 23. Frisch had 49 stolen bases to lead the National League, was second in run score with 121. Youngs was third in RBIs with 102. And the Giants really had to fend off the Pirates, who had the league's lowest ERA. But obviously, with all this homegrown talent and this combination of castoffs, man, we're bracing a lot of castoffs on both teams here. Uh, they were able to get into the World Series for the first time in four years. And one other name that shows up that we aren't going to be talking about a lot in this episode, but has to be mentioned on John McGraw's coaching staff for this 1921 Giants team, one Christy Mathewson. Man, he seems to be popping up everywhere. If he's not pitching, he's in media. If he's not in media, he is coaching. So uh, the man really has been around the World Series for a long time. Indeed. And speaking of media, I think maybe this is a perfect point to drop this in, is this was a fun World Series in that this was the first series 
that was broadcast over the radio. Well, it wasn't quite the radio hookup that we're used to today. KDKA earlier in the season had the very first broadcast of a baseball game that was a regular season game. So the way this was set up was Grantsman Rice as the announcer for the World Series by KDKA. He provided telephone play-by-play over a special three-station hookup between KDK and Pittsburgh, as well as WJZ in Newark and WBZ in East Springfield, Massachusetts. And Tommy Cowan, actually for the aforementioned Newark and Springfield stations, recreated summaries of the game from another side for those. So the coverage was local and not national. So we're still a year away from the World Series being covered on site, but still a good uh, starting point. Yeah, we're, we're getting up there from days of stuff being, you know, popping up in theaters with updates and check-ins in Times Square and things of that nature. But we're, you know, we're starting to see baseball more as it is today. And now, obviously, the other thing, too, is this World Series broadcast was nowhere near as commercialized as what we have today. No, there weren't sponsorships or anything like that. They were just trying to see how far radio could go because radio was just starting to come into the American consciousness at this time. Um, you know, I was, I've talked about this before because I've listened to this podcast about presidential elections. It was really around this time that you were starting to see radio be a thing. You know, Warren Harding, Calvin Coolidge, those were guys who were present around the time who were just starting to take advantage of what radio could be. So let's go into the game action here. And of notes, this will be the final best of nine World Series. It will revert back to the best of seven permanently next year. So also of notes, since these games are being played entirely at the polo grounds, the Giants and the Yankees are taking turns being the home team every other game. So I think it's a good way to keep it fair and you know, definitely a nice novelty to have since they really have to go anywhere. There's really no point in figuring out how else to play the series. Yeah, and you're able, because of the not having to worry about travel, is you're, you know, we had earlier ones where, okay, you've got relatively short train rides between, say, Detroit and Chicago for example, that we were talking about in the episodes from, you know, 1907-1908. You know, in this case, they're in the same place. You're able to play games on almost entirely consecutive days except for one day off between games three and four. So getting into game one, the Yankees jump out to a quick lead and win by a score of 3-2-0. Mays, according to Baseball Magazine, who was pitching for the Yankees, quote, had the Giants' bats waving like palm fronds in a hurricane. Mike McNally, a utility infielder, was the offensive hero for the Yankees. He had a single, a double, and he stole home. So already we are seeing some unlikely heroes for the Yankees and not one Mr. Ruth, at least not yet. Although Babe Ruth did have a part to play in this one because we had the true manufacture of a run for the Yankees in the top of the first. Elmer Miller single to center to lead off. Uh, Roger Peckinpah batting second, laid down a sacrifice bunt to move him over, and then Ruth singled him home. So immediately you've got the Yankees in front. They never looked back. The one number that amazed me looking at this is Frankie Frisch for the Giants went four for four in this game. And normally you would say, oh, wow, look at this. You have a guy going four for four with a triple, also stealing a base, and you get blanked. So clearly somebody besides one Frankie Frisch needs to step up and help the Giants out. 
Game two, we see another 3 nothing win for the Yankees. By the way, the Giants commit three errors in this game. Drink. So this has even crazier antics by one Bob Musio. And yes, he and Emil Musio are brothers. And Bob is the younger brother of this. For the second straight game, we have a steal of home. And it is by Bob Musio. Babe Ruth, by the way, he was 26, trim and athletic, which seems very unlikely given his reputation now. But he stole second and third in that same inning. And they were scoring runs and stealing bases off of the pitching of Hoyt, who pitched the second straight shutout for the Yankees. Yeah, I mean, the Yankees off to a really good start here. You've got a, what you would assume an experienced enough Giants team to be able to do some damage, but we keep talking about how the American League seems to, as a general rule, have the upper hand, and so far they have. I mean, that's you know technically holding serve at home because they're playing all their games at home even though they're, they're switching off, but getting off to a 2-0 start in a best of five is really good shape to get things started. Absolutely. So the Giants are in trouble being down 2 to nothing because at this point, no team has ever come back from a 2 nothing deficit in the World Series. But the Giants, they send Tony in for Game 3, and he got off to a terrible start. He left after only two innings. Meanwhile, you have one Mr. Jesse Barnes come in to relieve him. And he pitched seven innings of relief and had hits in two key rallies. The Giants come back into the lead with eight runs in the seventh inning, and they win by a score of 13-5. to On 20 hits, the Giants scored 13 runs. So the Yankees and the Giants are finally somewhat even in this series, even though the Giants are still trailing 2-1 to in the series overall. We mentioned the, the struggles from Fred Tony starting this game. I mean, he got off to a decent enough start, retired the side in order in the first, gave up a leadoff double in the second, but got out of it, managed to uh, get Bob Musil thrown out at home after the leadoff double and a sacrifice bond. And then it just the rails all fell apart in the third, going walk, single, single, walk. Single by Babe Ruth was enough, and that was when Jesse Barnes came in. They caught Ruth stealing had an RBI ground out, so really uh, Jesse Barnes did a good job limiting the damage from there, and then like you said, helped key that initial rally as the Giants behind 4 nothing. and you're thinking, okay, yeah, this series is as good as over, and you know, it helps when you get three straight walks, including two with the bases loaded, and then manufacture a couple more runs to get things tied, and then eventually have that massive eight-run seventh inning. The key play there was a Ross Young's three-run triple with two outs. Game four, we have another good Yankee stars. The Giants are held hitless by Mays into the sixth inning. And at that point, the Yankees have a one-two-nothing lead. But that luck is about to change because the Giants take the lead when Musial's triple starts a rally in the seventh inning. Babe Ruth homered in the ninth inning and the Giants win by a score of 4-2 to anyway. So the series is tied at 2. Sure, Ruth is on the board as far as home runs, but it's not enough to keep the Giants from tying the series up. Well, and the other thing here, too, and we haven't touched on this at all yet, is, yeah, you know, you had a home run from Babe Ruth, which to some degree, you know, hey, it's about time. 
but let's rewind a little bit. So going back into game two, we mentioned uh, Ruth stealing the bases in that game, helping things out. But in that stretch where he stole second and then went and stole third, he ended up scraping his elbow pretty badly and it ended up getting infected, which is kind of crazy to me now, a hundred years in the future with all of the athletic training that we have now somebody would be on that and get that bandaged up and good to go and not something that you would really see happen here in this instance and this is something that would come to have some consequences as the series went on in game three uh, ruth ended up re-scraping his elbow sliding into a base and had to come out of the game in the eighth inning and there was concern in this game for would he be able to play. He stayed on the bench during batting practice, but ended up starting, came in, played, had that ninth inning homer, but this injury to the elbow is going to cause some problems going forward. I can only imagine the uproar that would happen today if a player was underperforming or being held out of a game because they had a scraped elbow, especially a key game. I mean, just imagining right now, how much people would be spewing vitriol as a key player if this was happening to them and we would see the really dark side of social media because I mean a scraped elbow is something that children suffer on the playground and people would be like oh a major league ball player can't play because of a scraped elbow he's uh oh, I'm not gonna say the word here but yeah no we 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 know where you're going you know, to that point, like if it were just the scraped elbow, that'd be one thing, but it obviously wasn't treated because it sounded like it was getting infected, which, you know, if you're not going to treat it and let the thing get infected, that's just making things worse. And now granted, it's 1921 and we don't have nearly the athletic training support in 1921 that we do in 2022. In today's game, you get a guy scraped up, it's going to get bandaged up right away. And obviously, if he's complaining about it, then yeah, you're going to have the vitriol and the anger and the, oh, he's a you-know-what. But you would also have the treatment in place to hopefully minimize something like that. So, we'll get back to this in a moment. But first, Game 5, the series tied at 2-2. Two two. Hoyt pitched for the Yankees and won 3-1. The winning run was started by Ruth, who had a bunt single of all things. So even though that uh, elbow is bothering him, he's still finding ways to get the job done and to help his team win. And that just kind of goes to show you how even though home runs are obviously becoming a thing, we mentioned the 59 in the regular season and then now the one in the World Series, so he's up to 60 for the calendar year. You have a guy who's still willing to do a lot of the little things and help manufacture runs. And I don't want to say we don't see that in today's game anymore, but it shows you how differently the game is played and managed and strategized now. And we are not going to see Babe Ruth for the rest of the series because a bad knee and the aforementioned abscess on his left elbow proved to be too much. And that is all that the Giants are going to need to really have momentum. And just keep in mind, he had 59 home runs, which was then a single-season record that season. You don't really talk a whole lot about how one player missing is going to affect a whole lineup today. But at a time when 
home runs were starting to become hip and not nearly as much as they would become in later years, and Ruth was doing this all by himself, yes, that is an instance in which the loss of this particular player means the Yankees are in big trouble. Well, and especially, too, we've been mentioning in pretty much all of these Yankee wins, Babe Ruth has been prominently involved in every single game to this point. So, yeah, if you have the one guy who's been your superstar who is continuing to contribute, now all of a sudden is unable to, yeah, somebody else has got to get stepping up quick. Otherwise, this is going to be over. So we have the Giants pitching Tony for Game 6. And remember, he was bombed badly in Game 3. He pitched even worse this time, actually, because he couldn't even get out of the first inning. But Barnes came to his rescue again. He threw eight and a third innings of relief, and the Giants won by a score of 8-5. to five. Man, I really hope Tony bought Barnes a whole bunch of steak dinners for all the times he bailed him out when the stakes were high after this. Steak dinners, a little bit of booze, something like that. Because, yeah, I mean, we'll have to go back and look at the final numbers when it's all said and done. Because I really want to, you know, we didn't talk much about the World Series stats, obviously, since we hadn't gotten to the games yet. But it's going to be fun to go back and look at that. And at this point, I want to throw my hat in the ring at least early to name Jesse Barnes your World Series MVP. You could make a case for it. And I don't know. I hope, and you know, I don't know anything about the relationship between Tony and Barnes on or off the field, but I really hope that Tony decided that he was in Barnes's debt for the rest of his life because he really made him just a footnote in baseball history. Otherwise, then people would have been just going on and on about how terrible Tony was pitching, but Barnes really saved his hide big time. Well, and you have to credit the Giants for not giving up in this situation, too. Was you know They came back from that early 3-0 deficit. They tied the game in the top of the second. Barnes proceeded to give up two in the bottom half of inning number two. And that was it. The Giants were able to come back. They scored four in the fourth, added an insurance run in the sixth, made that 8-5 score hold up in game six. And we, the series is tied. It's now a best of three. Yes, this will be the final time we enter a Game 7, which is not a winner-take-all. So we might as well have a little bit of fun with it. Well, we're not going to have that much fun with it. The only thing of note, really, is that Douglas, their spitballer, took the mound, and he outpitched Mays in a 2-1 to final. Again, not a whole lot to talk about for this one, other than the Giants finally have a lead in this World Series. And obviously they have to be smelling blood, especially given that Babe Ruth is hurt and didn't play in this game seven either. And like I said, they have to, they figure they have to be smelling blood at this point. And game eight features a lot of action, if not a lot of memorable moments. Neff and Hoyt were the two pitchers in this game. The only run of the game was scored in the first inning when Roger Peckinpah let Grounder go through his legs. So this is a one nothing final, which the Giants have the advantage in and thus win the World Series. And the only run comes on an unearned run. But the Yankees still had a chance to rewrite history in the bottom of the ninth. They were down by a run. They have a man at first with one out. And there was a hit and run. Baker hit a line drive that looked like it was headed towards right field. But Johnny Rawlings at second base. Dove for the ball, knocked it down, threw for the ground to get Baker at first. 
And then Aaron Ward, who was the base runner, tried to go third on the play, and Kelly threw him out to complete the double play. So the World Series ends on a 4-3-5 double play. I don't think you're ever going to see that again. Uh, definitely not. I'd have to go and look to see how many 4-3-5 double plays exist in history. But yeah, I mean, you're not going to find any more significant than this one. This may be one of the biggest toot blands in World Series history, if not the biggest. I mean, it's come up a couple of times, but this is definitely the most consequential. And this also leaves out the fact, too, that leading off the bottom of the ninth, Miller Huggins, the Yankee manager, opted to send Babe Ruth out to pinch hit and figuring, well, you've got the best bat in the league who can tie the game up with one swing, and instead he bounces out to first base to record that first out before Aaron Ward walks, and we get that 4-3-5 double play. I just can't imagine how, for all of Home Run Baker's accolades in his career, that he was the hitter who had what appeared to be a solid hit, and instead he's on the front end of one of the biggest two plans, like you said, in the history of the World Series. And I can only imagine how Ward felt for the rest of his days about that. I'm sure that play had to eat him up just for the longest time. Going back now, I've got baseball references page up. And, you know, they've got some advanced stats here. I've brought it up a couple times about, like, you know, win probability added and championship win probability added for offensive player. And I'd have to assume base running would come into play here. Aaron Ward officially was credited with a roughly negative 5% championship win probability added. So... He contributed about 5% in the negative towards the loss. Now, obviously, the numbers aren't perfect, and we're probably overemphasizing a play like this just because this was the play that ended the World Series. This is another instance of I would love the time machine to go back and see what exactly happened just to kind of wonder what the thought process would have been like was the throw kind of offline how far up the line was he like did he think because of how hard it was hit and with the throws like oh I can make it to third pretty easily on that and it turns into a no absolutely not I know we said earlier that Babe Ruth didn't play after a game five but I mean, even though he did pinch in game A, but let's face it, it was not the Babe Ruth that was used to. So should we really count this as him really appearing? This one, I mean, officially, yes, but unofficially, no, I don't think it really counts. I mean, it counts by the letter of the rule, but definitely not by the spirit of the rule. So let's take a look at some of these pitching numbers. Barnes and Phil Douglas combined to go 4-1 and one with a combined ERA under 2. As far as the Yankees go, Wade Hoyt was the only pitching bright spot for the Bronx Bombers. Uh, well, I mean, not the Bronx Bombers, yeah, it's just a Babe Ruth bomber at this point. He had a 2-1 record with a perfect ERA and just took the hard luck loss in Game 8 on that unearned run. So, yes, Lucas, if you are going to pick a World Series MVP, it has to come from the pitching side. We mentioned... Jesse Barnes's number. So let's go into the Tony and Barnes comparison. So Fred Tony started two games, pitched a total of two and two-thirds innings, had the gaudy ERA of 23.63. And we also have to mention the hitting, and the Bombers were out-hit 269 to 207, and they were matched in team home runs with two apiece. So... 
not the best hitting World Series by any stretch of the imagination, even going back to the dead ball era. But at the same time, this was a pitching heavy World Series and you kind of have to cut the hairs a little bit of slack for not hitting as much as they otherwise might have because you already have to give the credits to all of these guys for stepping up when they were needed, especially Barnes and Douglas. In fact, we've mentioned before that a few pitchers in previous World Series could have gotten co-World Series MVPs. Maybe you could have given it to both Barnes and Douglas because they were equally effective. And you could possibly throw Art Neff into the discussion there too. Yes, he lost two of his three starts, but posted a 138 ERA. The 13 walks is a little bit alarming, but I mean, on the whole, he did the job that he was asked to do. And I keep coming back to Jesse Barnes, and it's a, you know, three relief appearances, a 2-0 record, over 16 and a third innings pitched. He allowed a sub one whip, struck out 18 batters over those 16 and a third innings. So those are kind of numbers you see from more like premier strikeout artist pitchers. Oh yeah, and Jesse Barnes went four for nine and scored three runs in the series. Also, no, Barnes had six walks, so his strikeout-to-walk ratio was a perfect three-to-one. So, if I wanted to give it to one guy, I would probably give it to Barnes. I mean, yes, he contributed from the hitting front, but let's face it, the pitching is really the reason that he is remembered for this series. And again, much to the light of John McGraw, because like I said, the Yankees outdrew the Giants in the polo grounds, and he was just so mad about the Yankees starting to take over New York. And yet he still got the last laugh here. So do I have a homework assignment to take the Michael Jordan, then I took that personally picture and put John McGraw's face over it because I suck at Photoshop? Uh, I don't think I can do it either because pre- my Photoshop skills are probably as bad as yours, if not worse. In fact, I'm going to say worse, but that's just me. So I think we've said everything about this 1921 World Series. Coming up in our next episode, we will get a rematch in 1922. Who will win this next Subway Series? Tune in next week to find out. So let us conclude here for Lucas Mitzel. I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thank you for listening to the 1921 episode of Then There Were Two History of the World Series. Make sure you like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Be sure to subscribe as well. We'll see you next time.